0: Welcome to week three of our sermon series on the book of Revelation, what might be one of the most misunderstood books in the entire Bible. Now we've been reading the book of Revelation together as a church family. We're on a sprint through this challenging and mysterious and yet ultimately hope-filled book. Now, just a a foundation, a reminder, we're reading this book the way that uh, the overwhelming majority of Christians across time and space have read it, the way that most uh, scholars read it and theologians read it, that most mainline Christians read it, as a piece of apocalyptic literature. And and if you want to know more about why that is, uh, go back and and rewatch the first sermon in this series. I'm not going to go into why we're reading it that way today, but just a reminder on apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a little bit like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and I told you that last week. Uh, The protagonist experiences a fantastic journey full of these incredible creatures and images also that he can return to Earth and live differently right now. It's not primarily about predicting the future, but about seeing a possible future so that we can change how we live in the present Now, for Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, uh, he meets a series of ghosts that show him just how off track his life has become, how he's defined by greed and anger and hurt that's taking him down a path that he might not want to travel. However, they do this because there's hope that he might change now and also change the future because of how he lives now. Now, they take him hostage on a journey. But in doing so, they show him how he's already become hostage to many of the things in his life. Now, if the book of Revelation is like a Christmas carol, then we've reached the point in our scripture journey where ghosts show up in the middle of the night and kidnap the main character. This is the scary part of the book of Revelation, or at least the most frightening part. We're at a part in the middle called the Tribulation, or the Great Tribulation, Uh, And you might not have heard of that term, but even if you haven't heard of the term tribulation, you've probably heard of some of the images that come from it. Uh, This is the part of the book where we're going to meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, and they're riding white and red and black and pale green horses, respectively. Uh, That's not just a Notre Dame backfield. This is part of scripture. Uh, This is the part where we're going to meet the beast, and sometimes that's called the Antichrist. We're going to meet, or we're going to hear the blaring of the final trumpet. All of these images that even if you've never been to church before, even if you've never cracked the Bible, that you've probably encountered these somewhere in a song or a movie uh, or a book reference. This is uh, the part where monsters are going to start wandering the earth Natural disasters are going to reach truly apocalyptic levels, and billions will die. Now, the pop culture version that I disagree with, but I, I want to at least put out there so that you can hear it. The pop culture version of tribulation goes like this. After the rapture, which we talked about last week, all of the Christians are pulled out of earth, and God begins to lose his patience and turns up the heat And things get worse and worse for those who are left behind and and more and more perish. And there's this escalating series of seals and then trumpets and then bowls of God's wrath poured out onto the earth. This reading uh, of Revelation that way reinforces the idea that this world is doomed and there's ultimately no hope for those who are trapped and left behind. Now, it probably won't surprise you that I don't think that's uh, the only way to read the book of Revelation or even the correct way to read the book of Revelation. In fact, it's it's not the way that historically most Christians uh, all over the face of the earth have read the book of Revelation as one of without hope for the earth. But it is one that becomes popular. And part of it's that these images are so fascinating, they're so incredible that they've become part of our pop culture. You've encountered some of these images even if you've never cracked the Bible. However, if you do open the Bible you might start to see a slightly different story. So let's dive in. I want to read some of the parts of the book of Revelation, this part called the Great Tribulation And I wonder if you might start to see something else happening here. First off, I'm going to begin in the part called uh, the trumpets. There's seven escalating trumpets, and and they show more and more and more bad stuff happening over the earth. I'm going to dive in uh, at chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail mixed with fire uh, mixed with blood appeared and was thrown down on earth. The earth, hail mixed with fire. You know, if we think for a sec, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? I mean, what if what if we were to flip back? We're right at Revelation at the end of the book, but what if we were to flip back almost to the beginning, to the second chapter? Uh, and if we were at uh, Exodus chapter nine, we're going to see a different picture of hail mixed with fire. The Lord said to Moses, "Raise your hand towards the sky." So that hail will fall on the land of Egypt, on people and animals and the grain in the fields and the land of Egypt. So this isn't the first time we've seen hail mixed with fire. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? What if we keep going? The second trumpet, this is uh, this is uh, chapter 8, verse 8. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures living in the sea died. I mean, that's violent, and that's hard to wrestle with. It it also reminds me of, wait, another verse. This is uh, Exodus 7, uh, verse 20, uh, and, and it reads like this. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised the shepherd's rod and hit the water and the Nile in front of Pharaoh and the officials, and all of the water of the Nile turned to blood. Okay, so what's the third, the third trumpet? Um, chapter 8, verse 10. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, burning like a torch, fell from heaven. It blew on a third of the rivers and springs of water, and the star's name was Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it became so bitter. So the last one was on the sea, kind of the, the salt water. This is on now the fresh water. Um, wait. Isn't that what happened in the last passage? The fish in the Nile died. The Nile began to stink, so the Egyptians couldn't even drink from the water. Okay, so maybe maybe that's just coincidence. What about uh, chapter? Uh, what about what about the next trumpet? What about the fourth trumpet? Um, chapter eight, verse twelve. Uh, here we go. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them became dark. The day lost a third of its light, and the night lost a third of its light, too. Um, Friends, Exodus 10, uh, verse 21 through 22, reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, raise your right hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over the land of Egypt, a darkness so thick that you can feel. And the next trumpet, the fifth trumpet, locusts come out over the whole world. And in Exodus uh, 10, locusts go out over the whole world. The sixth trumpet, people hardened their hearts and refused to repent. That happens in Exodus 4 and Exodus 9 and Exodus 14. The seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, there's all these natural disasters, earthquakes, and um, more hail fire and lightning. That's Exodus 9. What's going on here? Are these supposed to be so similar? I mean, I gotta ask. Did John the Revelator just rip off the book of Exodus and try to pass it on as his own work? Teachers, how many of you, now that school has started, how many of you, if you got a paper from John the Revelator that read like this and had this many similarities to a book that was already out there that had been published 1,300 years earlier, how many of you might have had some questions about plagiarism? I mean, if this was a Hollywood sequel that was out there, we would pan it. Critics would blast it for shoddily copying uh, all of the stuff that had come before. Is this just plagiarism? Or is something else going on? Or is something else happening here? See, friends, I think John not only copies Exodus, but does it intentionally intentionally because he knows that we might catch on. I don't think he's trying to hide uh, this. I think, actually, we're supposed to see a hint of the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. Remember how we said apocalyptic literature makes use of fantastic images and existing themes from the Bible to make a point for how we should live today? John is expecting people to see what he's doing and to hearken back to Exodus and wonder how it applies to their lives today. See, friends, the book of Revelation isn't going to make sense until we begin to understand this context, that it's part of the whole story of scripture and the incredible story arc of what God is doing in and among and through the world. If we miss that, then we're going to think that the book of Revelation in this part called the tribulation is just violent and vengeful. But if we see it in context, we might actually see an incredibly powerful, potent hope. See, it's in Exodus, this book at the very beginning of the Bible, that John, writing the last book in the Bible, finally finds a a setting. It's similar enough to his, that it offers a hope strong enough for what his people are going through. John is writing uh, a generation after the death and resurrection of Christ. Exodus was written 1,300 years earlier. Scholars kind of debate that, but 1,300 to 1,500 years earlier uh, about what happened in the land of Egypt when Moses shows up and says, let my people go, and there's 10 plagues, and all of these incredibly fantastic things happen. The book of Exodus tells the story of people enslaved by the Egyptian pharaoh, the king, who claimed to be a god, who told the slaves they had to spend back-breaking days in the hot sun of Egypt, building monuments to his own greatness, who with impunity would throw their children into the Nile River. The people who first heard Exodus The people who saw God's power on display through the 10 plagues. They were living in Egypt, which was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. The Pharaoh was the most powerful person in history at the time, and they were desperate for a hope strong enough to stand up even against that power. Mild hope was not going to work here. For the Egyptian slaves, these Hebrews who were enslaved to the Egyptians, uh, the power of positive thinking wasn't going to be enough. Just soldiering on, just putting a brave face on it, wasn't going to be enough to help them stand up against what uh, horrific things they were enduring. And that was true for them, and I think John saw that and said, hey, if the hope they found is strong enough for them, it might be strong enough for my people too. See, the Christians in, in the first century were under horrific situations As well. They lived in the Roman Empire with all of its obsession with uh, dominion, with strength, and with crushing its enemies under their feet. And I think they saw themselves a little bit like those Hebrew slaves, wondering is there a power strong enough to give us hope in the face of that great power? Is there a power strong enough in the universe to help us stand up against the most powerful evil that we can possibly? imagine. Think of it this way, friends. Uh, If you go into the hospital with a headache, um, sometimes Tylenol is all it takes. Sometimes you don't need a big, massive uh, treatment. But if you go in and they discover cancer, Tylenol starts to look a little bit too weak. And at that point, we begin to look for a powerful treatment, even one that might make us a little afraid. Something like chemotherapy, which we know will damage our body, but also has the strength to stand up against that which we face. Exodus and Revelation both speak of a terrifyingly powerful hope. The ten plagues of Egypt play out like a showdown between God, our God, and the the gods of the Egyptians. Between the freedom that God brings in liberating his people, remember Moses says, let my people go, and uh, between the slavery uh, and hostility of Egypt, the things that were holding these people hostage. Now, scholars debate on whether or not these were literal or allegorical and how much we should read into them. I have to move quick here, and that's about Exodus anyways. We're talking about Revelation today. I'm going to save a lot of the historical context for uh, a podcast we're actually watching to go with this, uh, because there's just way too much to go into here. Just a little context, though. Uh, the The 10 plagues of Egypt tend to parallel some of the Egyptian gods and deities. So for instance, the first plague is the Nile River turning to blood. Um, And what you need to know is that the Egyptians worshipped a god called Hapi or Haki, uh, the god of the Nile. The Nile was seen as life-giving for them. And so in this, we have a display on uh, the Egyptians seeing the Nile as life-giving. And here, God is showing no, it is life-taking. And there is a clash, there is a collision between two different opposing forces, both arguing to have supreme authority. And it parallels Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt, actually the most powerful man in the history of the world at this time. And Moses, the 70, 80 something year old shepherd who has no power and no authority. And there's a question over, is there a power great enough? To break us free from the things that hold us hostage. Now, that brings us into a hard question. What about all the violence? I mean, it's troubling to see all of the stuff that's happening here. And friends, I think, frankly, it should be. I also don't think it was troubling to see all this violence to the Hebrew slaves, 1,300 years before the birth of Christ, who had seen their children thrown into the Nile or to the first-century Christians who had grown up in the shadow of the Colosseum and who had watched their friends be used as torches to light Nero's banquets. Uh, To quote Frederick Douglass, um, power concedes nothing without a demand. And I think what we see here in both of these stories is that power was confronting Power That all Pharaoh understood, and all the later Roman emperors would understand, was power. And so both of these stories show that even in the face of people who understand nothing but power, there is another power strong enough to stand against it. That the seemingly all-powerful people who held others hostage with impunity, who understood only strength, that they were not strong enough to stop the liberating work Jesus Christ. Now, for the original audience of Revelation 2,000 years ago, the people to whom John the Revelator was writing, uh, they weren't as concerned with some of the details of Exodus. They weren't worried about the the Egyptian gods like Ra or Anubis. They weren't afraid of Pharaoh. He'd been dead for 1,300 years. But there were still things holding them hostage. There were still things for which they needed an Exodus moment, power to overcome the things that held them powerless. For some of them, that was that was fear. Fear about what the day would come, right will, rightful, um, founded, understandable fears about what might come next. Part of what might hold them hostage was uh, their own temptations and inclinations. Uh, we can understand this. Uh, the Romans, uh, these early Christians, would have grown up in Rome, or uh, most of them would have grown up in Rome, and they would have grown up in a culture that was obsessed with and glorified uh, violence. Rome... Uh, Well, the heartbeat of Rome was the blood and sand of the Colosseum. It was the march of the Imperial Legions. Rome indulged violence with almost religious zeal. It was just an expected part of the culture. And yet these Christians, they said, well, we follow the Prince of Peace. And so when people began to capture and torture their brothers and sisters in Christ, there was a temptation. Which do we respond with? the way we grew up or the way we've been taught. Sometimes what holds us hostage is our own history or our past, the temptation to respond in a way that we know we ought not. Sometimes what held uh, the ancient Christians, those Christians living under Rome hostage, was literal false gods. Uh, There was one called uh, Victoria. That's the Latin version of the word, uh, female version of the word, victory. And she was a winged uh, goddess of winning. The Romans were obsessed with her. They would carry banners of Victoria into battle. Uh, They were so obsessed that their enemies knew how obsessed they were. There's graffiti in Arabia that said, Romans always win. Uh, I think, honestly, Romans would have been like the biggest DJ Khalid fans of the ancient world. They were obsessed with winning every time at any cost. And that obsession with winning had consequences, well, for the people around them, maybe. See, at this point in history, scholars believe that between 25 and 40 percent of all the people living within the boundaries of the Roman Empire were slaves. Many of them, people who had found themselves. On the wrong side of one of Rome's many victories. Revelation itself, the book, ends with a picture of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven into the earth, but that's necessary because the Romans had destroyed the first Jerusalem. In 70 AD, somebody had questioned their winning ways, and and so they just leveled half the city. By the way, I have to bring this out. If that feels like irrelevant and and if we don't struggle with this obsession with winning and victory now, I would remind you Victoria was the Latin name for the Roman goddess of victory. Her Greek name, you've heard. It's Nike. And yes, that is where the name comes from. And yes, it was chosen. Because sometimes we see victory the same way. See, Rome... Rome had problems that kept people held hostage. And the book of Revelation, uh, especially the center part called the Great Tribulation, harkens back to Exodus to show that that's not the way it's always going to be. It reminded people in Rome that, that 1,300 years before them, God had shown up with power and brought liberation even in the face of a power that would not back down. And that if it worked 1,300 years ago against Pharaoh in Egypt, that there was a chance it might work uh, 2,000 years ago to us, but in their modern time against the emperor and the Roman legion. For the original audience of Revelation, reading this book, Christians toiling under the dominion of Rome, this meant that they had hope even in the face of power that would not back down that even when they faced uh, the feeling of powerlessness even when they were held hostage and felt like they had no way forward that there was someone on their side strong enough to go toe to toe with the most powerful things that they could imagine and that evil would not win so what does that mean for us right now 2020 here in the midwest of the US I think it means the the things that make us feel powerless. The things that hold us hostage, that we are reminded that God is strong enough to stand up against anything and bring us hope and healing. So what are the things that hold us hostage now? I think one of them is fear. And I could probably preach a sermon on fear every single week because it's something that we experience, you and I experience, every single week. I think it's, it's fear that makes it hard for us to really face and confront the harsh realities around us. There's a temptation not to look at them, not to face them. And I understand the temptation to pretend that the world's just going to go back to normal soon. I understand the temptation not to take those hard steps, not to even voice them out loud for fear. They might become real. It's scary to realize that we might lose a football season to realize that, well, Fixtures in our community, businesses and opportunities and events that we're used to might not happen this year. It's scary and fear can make us feel powerless. It can hold us hostage, but I also believe that we follow a God strong enough to stand up against even the most powerful things that make us feel so small and bring us hope. So maybe it's fear. Maybe it's hate. And let's not pretend that that's something that doesn't happen even to Christians. I know we want to say, oh, I would never hate anybody. I love everybody. Um, Really? Even uh, that one politician on that one other party that you disagree with, you love them. Friends, uh, candidate Biden picked his vice president this week. And I saw social media blow up. There wasn't a lot of love there. I mean, people loved their own side, but for the other side... I saw a lot of hate. I saw hate from both sides. Maybe it's hate that makes us feel powerless when we hop online and we turn on the TV and we see that people are just so filled with vitriol. And we wonder what hope might there be for something this strong? Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's just, uh, just that inability to sleep because we're anxious. I don't know about you, but if you've ever at three o'clock in the morning laid up thinking about all of the things that are going wrong and all of the stuff that could go wrong, no matter how hard you try, you're not able to muscle yourself back to sleep. Sometimes that just makes it worse. And we wrestle and we turn back and forth and we feel powerless before our anxiety. Friends, I don't know what holds you hostage. I don't know if you even know what holds you hostage, but I do know this. That 2,000 years ago, John the Revelator wrote a book called the Book of Revelation, to people who felt hostage and powerless in the face of all against them. And it referenced uh, a book 1,300 years before that called the Book of Exodus and the Ten Plagues, uh, when other people had felt held hostage and powerless before the things that were facing them. And time and time again in history, we see that the God of the universe is strong enough to stand up against the things that make us feel powerless because God is powerful. And this story is hopeful. And when I read the book of Revelation and this section called the Great Tribulation, I don't see there's no hope for the world. I see that the book is overflowing with hope. That even those places where power seems like it's unwilling to back down and allow the captive free, that God says, no, they too have hope. And the God that moved and reigned in Exodus and the God that moved and reigned in the book of Revelation, is the God that moves and reigns today and will reign forever and ever and ever, and that's next week, so we're going to hold that thought. But I want to end with this. Whatever holds you hostage, whatever makes you feel powerless, is nowhere near as powerful as the God that we worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are with us. And God, I pray for those who feel powerless in the face of their circumstances. Uh, who are wrestling with fear, God, who are wrestling with anger, who are struggling with uh, addiction, who are overcome by anxiety, that, God, they would remember that you are a God who is powerful, that stands up even against the most powerful forces in the world, God, that you stood up against Pharaoh and overcame, that you stood up against the Roman Empire and overcame, that, God, you stand with us, that your power brings freedom to us. God, be with us.